Well, you can turn to the book of 2 Timothy. All the way near the end of the Scriptures, 2 Timothy, if you hit Peter and Hebrews and stuff, you've probably gone too far. Not probably, you have gone too far. Going back to 2 Timothy, a little book by the Apostle Paul. We have slowed down the last three weeks to look at this idea of godliness. What is real godliness? Christians use that phrase. That person is godly. Or, I want to be more godly. In the, in the passage that we've been looking at, 2 Timothy 3, which uses these words of godly and godliness, the one who desires to live a godly life. And I could summarize what we've looked at so far by saying several impossible statements. If you want to think about what godliness is, you can look at it negatively and say this, it's impossible to be godly while hiding. While hiding. This is why he says, those who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And so to be godly means that you come out of just an appearance of godliness and you confess your sins, which we've already done today. So it's impossible to be godly while hiding. It's also impossible without watching your life. What Paul tells us, you need to watch my faith, my perseverance. As I follow Christ, so follow me, and so watch your own life. It's impossible to be godly without watching your life. It's impossible, he says straight up in the passage that we read last week, that it's impossible to be godly without persecution and suffering. Without watching that suffering that happens in your life. All who desire to live a godly life, he says, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. We talked about what that means. Watching our life. Watching our persecution and our suffering. And today, we're going to finish up this series just on this one chapter in 2 Timothy 3 on talking about the Scriptures. Now, I'll admit that in my sermon planning, I did not realize until maybe like a week and a half ago that I was going to be preaching on the value of Scripture on Reformation Day. So, if you were thinking that was just really a great connection. Um, it was the Lord's connection, not, not mine. Um, but regardless, we do have a heritage. We've mentioned it before in the service. If you don't know what that means, totally fine. Uh, Reformation Day, we celebrate this time. One of the battle cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura. This is Scripture alone. And I'm going to add an impossible statement to finish out this, this little mini-series within 2 Timothy. It's impossible to be godly without the Scriptures. It's impossible to be godly without the Word of God. As Paul will instruct us this morning. I want to read just four verses here, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. Let's read this together. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. So last year I found a letter uh, that was written to me by my dad um, about 15 to 20 years previous. And this letter contained words of uh, comfort, words of assurance, words of instruction, some scripture verses, and looking at that letter, apparently I was going through a hard time in my life, uh, though I confess I don't remember what occasioned him to write the letter. Like many of you, I've had gone through many different things, and there's been seasons where I've been down, and my dad in those times has written me letters. There are a number of letters over the years, and I don't sadly have most of them. Most of them did not survive my childhood, but this has been going on for a long time. Whenever there was something big that happened in our family, some kind of change, we were moving or changing jobs or anything like that, I would find a letter from my dad. Whenever I was going through something hard or drama with a girl or whatever it may be, I remember receiving these letters from him, and if I were to have all of those letters, I would have a trail of his concern, his love, his affection, his burden for me. I do have some of them. And I hesitate to even share that at the beginning because I know that many people don't have necessarily that kind of relationship with their dad, or maybe there's some woundedness there, but I want to tell you this morning that if you are in Christ, you do have that relationship with your Heavenly Father. You have a Father who throughout the history of the world has written, has breathed out His love, His concern, His instructions, His plans for the future, His burden, His cares for you, and He has done so through letters written to us. And while I, don't, I think it took me decades to re- realize the privilege that I had of a father who took that kind of concern for me, I think sometimes it takes us sometimes to realize the privilege that we have of God's written Word, breathed out Word to us. We are distorted in our thinking of Scripture as 21st century Americans, we tend to think of it as something, maybe sometimes as a burden, as a ponderous thing to, to kind of approach the, the letters of love that God has given us in the Scriptures. If we don't think of it as a burden, perhaps we truncate God's Word to a code of some kind, a code that helps me live an inspirational life, uh, perhaps a code that helps me understand end times, if that's my interest, a code to understand business ethics. And so we trivialize and we make it lighter than it is a self-help guide. But in previous generations, it's hard for us to capture sometimes the value of the written, breathed-out Word of God. And previous generations believe this to be the greatest gift that God had given us. There's stories of churches carrying in the Scripture. People stand as the Scriptures are carried in because they reverence them so much. And of course, before the printing press, 
all you could do was gather around as someone who was learned enough to be able to read, could hear, you could hear the words from their mouth. And so we find ourselves in a time where there's never been such an abundance of accessibility and such a great neglect of the Scriptures. And we feel guilty about it. We feel burdened by it. Here's what I want us to see this morning about our quest for godliness. We will continue to neglect the Scriptures until we see it as a sacred gift. We will continue to neglect the Scriptures until we see them as a sacred gift. And so this morning, I'm not interested in uh, pushing a methodology on you, though I hope that it will be practical, and I want you to approach the Scriptures methodologically and, and have a plan and that kind of thing. I think that's good, but that's not the thrust of today. I don't want to push guilt either, even though you may be appropriately chastened in your heart. That's good. That's not the purpose the purpose is not methodology and it's not guilt because I don't think that either one of those things on their own or together is what causes people to love the Scriptures. How do we get to the point where we see the Scriptures as Paul describes it here as the sacred writings? The sacred writing. This is the most beautiful section of 2 Timothy in my opinion. It's the most well-crafted. It's the most beautiful in the original language. It just is set apart. There's a reason why 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17 have become the battle cry of a generation for the inspiration of the Scriptures. It is well said. And Paul's care is so evident in the way that he sets this off. He says these things are sacred. He's waxing poetic about the gift. How do we have that perspective why is Scripture such a profound gift? I want to give you four uh, reasons this morning. And the first one is this. It is the gift of generations. The first beautiful thing about the Scriptures is that it is a gift that is given generationally. That's what makes it sacred. That's what makes it beautiful. Look at verse 14 with me. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from sacred childhood, verse 15, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. From childhood, Timothy had learned these things. Timothy had heard the story. Remember Timothy's story. We saw it in chapter 1. Timothy has a faithful legacy. His mother, Eunice, taught him the Scriptures. His grandmother, Lois, taught him the Scriptures. And Paul, taught him the Scriptures. He's learned these Old Testament stories from childhood. That's what Paul is talking about here. When you were sitting on your grandmother's knee, you were hearing about these stories. And then he had a mentor in Paul. That's who he learned this from. Standing firmly in what he believed, knowing from whom you learned it. He's talking about this cloud of witnesses in Timothy's life who have given him these stories. All of us are called, not just parents, by the way, in the room, all of us are called to tell the story of the Scriptures to the next generation. 
It is part of the gift. It's part of the privilege of having this is that we get to pass it on. That's how God primarily communicates His redemption story throughout history. How does God bring people into the faith? Well, lots of different ways. Of course, evangelism happens beautifully, wonderfully. There are those who are gifted and those who are called to evangelize. And there are those who come to faith when they hear the Gospel. Maybe you are wondering about your faith this morning. You're going to hear this morning about Jesus Christ. You can respond to that call. doesn't matter what your family was before that. doesn't matter how much uh, you know about the Scriptures. You can respond to God's call today. And God does use that. However, what He uses more is the story of generations being told and building up the faith. That is ordinarily the fabric by which the faith is held together and that is God's design. I saw this thought experiment somewhere. I don't remember where. Um, and it's just a thought experiment. Okay, I'm not advocating this. I'm not saying this is what will happen or should happen. But here's, here's the, the, what this person encouraged us to think about. What if somehow, it's a thought experiment, what if we could trade, make a trade in Christianity? What if we could trade, and, and on the one side, we will say we'll never have an adult convert to the Christian faith again? What would we get in return? In return, what if every one of our children continued in the faith? You see the tension there. What would happen? Well, it would only take two or three generations for this world was Christianized. Christians have more children, by the way, than non-Christians do, sociologically speaking, at our time. This would, this would be a good thing for the numbers of our faith. Right? It's just a thought experiment. Of course, evangelism, I don't say any of that to downplay evangelism at all. What I'm saying is the, the way that God often, most often carries the faith is through the family. It's a generational gift. And I say these things and I know immediately there are some pain points that get touched in the room. I'll just name a couple of those. Here's one of them. You may be hearing these stories about myself and about Timothy who had Eunice and Lois and you think, I didn't have that. I wasn't equipped this way in the faith. Here's another one. I have older children and their faith is wavering or it's gone or hiding. And you wrestle with the, the blame of that and the, you wonder if you share in the blame of that. Here's another one. I didn't have kids or I wasn't able to have kids. How do I pass on the faith and the generation when God has not blessed me with generations? This is, this is painful to talk about. I need to talk about it, but I know that there are pain points. But what helps me is to realize who Paul is writing this to. It's Timothy who is then ministering to Ephesus. And this was read in the Ephesian church. And this was a messed up place. We've already talked about those 19 lists of sins, those things that were going on in the church, how these men were coming in and teaching false gospels and all of these things. This was a dysfunctional place. So Paul is presenting a model here. 
Not to condemn, but to show what's possible through the generations. It's possible to have more and more like Timothy who have grown up. And so, wherever you are, wherever you are in this, you can be generation number one. If you have young children or older children, you can be Eunice to them. Maybe that ship has sailed. Can you be Lois to your grandchildren? Maybe you don't have grandchildren. What if you don't have kids at all? Well, who's writing this? Paul didn't have kids. He didn't. And yet, Timothy has become his child, his beloved son. He has looked into the church and found his child in Timothy. That's why he calls him his child, my son, my beloved son at the beginning of the book. He has written himself into Timothy's story. He has made him his child. And that's why he's writing this letter And this church, like that church, is full of young and not so young people of the faith that need your faith, that need this gift of generations. And the objection that comes to our minds is this, I don't know how to do that. I'm not equipped to do that. I don't think I can do that. And I would just challenge us to say, whatever you can give is something that you have to give. That is the way this works. No one has all of it. That's why we are the body. One more story about my dad. My dad was a Gideon. Um, if you don't know what that is, Gideon's International is an organization. They're responsible for putting the Bibles in the hotel and motel rooms that you've seen before. And it's just a group of businessmen who do this. Pastors aren't allowed to, to be there. So he was a businessman and he helped distribute Bibles to prisons and that kind of thing. He had this ministry going on. I didn't know a lot about it. But he always had this stack of orange Bibles, uh, little New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. And um, I remember one time, I was about 9 or 10, he gave me one of those Bibles. Here it is. (laughs) This was the the gift from my dad. It's just a, a small gift. Now, he gave me so much more than that. But I still have this. And I already had a Bible, by the way, when I was 10. And he still gave me this. And he wrote something in the front of it. It was just a gift, but this stayed with me from someone who gave so much. It can just be a small thing. What you have. Can you give someone a Bible? Can you, do you know where the story of creation is? Genesis 1. If you didn't know. Can you take someone to Genesis 1, a child or someone young in the faith? Can you say John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Can you? Do you have one or two parts of the Scripture where you frequently go that have helped you in your life? Can you tell your story of, of how you became a Christian? Yes, you can do all of those things. And there are people in this church and every church who need that. What do you have? It's impossible to be godly without the Scriptures. How do we get the Scriptures? By seeing them as beautiful and sacred. They are a gift. The gift that is passed down. The gift of generations. And generations can start at any time. 
I'll move more quickly now. There are three more aspects about this gift that we are given in the Scriptures. Secondly, the gift is the gift of God's voice. Do we realize the privilege that we have in the Scriptures that we are given God's very voice? Look at verse 16, just the very first part with me. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. This is what we call in theology the inspiration of the Scriptures. That Scripture is breathed out. That's what that word means. And this is the most profound statement in the Bible on its own inspiration. On its own authority. On its own source which is God Himself. When we speak, the words that we speak, the words I'm speaking right now are me breathed. They are using my breath to shape sound and therefore they come from a certain source. This is what the Scripture says about itself. It itself is God-breathed. It is spoken out from Him and therefore it comes with authority. It comes as a gift to us. How did this happen? How did God breathe out the Scriptures? I thought Paul wrote this book. He did. What we believe is that God uses human beings and He, he carries them along by the Holy Spirit to give us His Scriptures. That's in Second Peter chapter 1 where we say the Scriptures are these writings that have been written by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is not the case that God robotically inhabited people and therefore made them breathe out words as robots. That's not what happened. When you look at Scripture, it is very varied. We see psalms. We see songs. We see poems. We see laws. We see records. There are all different kinds of modes of communication in the Scriptures. The emphasis of the inspiration of the Scriptures is not the mode of how it's presented. It is the result that God uses the experiences, the faith, the doubts, the stories of individuals, and then He uses them for His purposes. He carries them along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we've always emphasized not just the process of writing the Scriptures, but the end product, which is what we call the canon of Scripture that is contained here in the Bibles that we have brought this morning. Does the idea of a canon take a leap of faith? Of course it does. I wish we had time today to go into some of the reasons why I trust in this canon of Scripture, but let me just emphasize this this morning. Let's say you buy it. That this is... God's Word. You see what a gift that is? You see what that means? That we have the gift of God's voice. We don't have an appreciation for this like we should. We're trying to redeem that. You ever wonder why we say, thanks be to God after the Scripture is read. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's not. We're not trying to be Cool, we're not trying to throw people off who've never been here before. Sorry if you were. 
thrown off by that, you know, it's like, I wasn't watching the bulletin. I didn't know I was supposed to say that then. That's okay. It's okay. Just come back next week. You'll know exactly when to say it. It's, it's just, this is the way it happens. Um, thanks be to God. So just a throwaway comment? Like, no, of course, we're thanking God. Why? What do you do when you're thanked? There's some kind of gift that's happened. There's some kind of thing that's been received. This is the word of the Lord. Do you see that we have the gift of God's voice given to us, spoken to us? We need to recover this. We need to go back to Psalm 19. Psalm 119. See how David speaks about the Scriptures. Go back to Deuteronomy. See the emphasis on the law of God, the Word of God. Where Moses, foreseeing that there would be a king in Israel one day, gives the law and says the first act of the king of Israel when he comes into office is to sit down, take out a quill, and to write out the entire law of God by hand. Because, and then meditate on it day and night, because this was going to be the source of his authority. The end of the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses is finishing the law, finishing the word that is from God to the people, he says this, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word to you, but your very life. Your very life rests on the Word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When we look at Scriptures, we see this profound gift that God has spoken. It's not empty. It's our very life. The gift of generations. The gift of God's voice. Thirdly, the gift of usefulness. There's a couple of pairs of words here that Paul uses to describe what the Scriptures are for. All Scripture, verse 16, is breathed out by God and profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Two pairs of words there that get at a couple of ideas. Teaching and reproof. And then secondly, correction and training. The first pair of words has to do with doctrine with right thinking, with the right approach, reproof and sorry, for teaching and for reproof. The word reproof there is for the idea of like a, a philosophical reproof or a a um an understanding that is it's it's a negative word, but that's what he means. It means you're you know what's right. Teaching and knowing what's right. And so the first two words have to do with right thinking or theology, and the second two have to do with conduct. Correction and training in righteousness. Not just saying true things and guarding against saying untrue things, but rather living them out. Actually being corrected. Actually changing your life. And positively training for righteousness. Well, where have we seen this emphasis before on right thinking and right conduct? It's exactly what Paul has done earlier when he says, I keep a close watch on my life and on my teaching. Those two things go together. Remember, that's why he's different than the imposters who are, who are um, not godly. 
They just have the appearance of godliness. Their teaching and their conduct doesn't line up. And he says to us, if you want your life to line up, you want to be godly, then you have to see the Scriptures as your source for both right thinking and right living. That's what he means. And so he starts with the, neg- with, uh, the mind and then he moves into the heart and the life. It is negative and positive. It is what you should avoid and what you should adopt. In other words, if he was telling us how to get skinnier, he would say, stop eating fast food, right? And start working out. Stop and start. Same idea here. The Scriptures tell us what to avoid in our thinking and in our living and what to adopt in our thinking and our living. This is pictured beautifully for us in the the catechism of our church since it's Reformation Sunday. I'll be a little dorky about that. Westminster Confession of Faith has a larger catechism. Yes, there is a larger catechism, not just a shorter catechism. And if you look at the Ten Commandments section of that, it pictures this idea, these two tensions, beautifully. When you look at each commandment, there's several different things that are said about each commandment. Several questions and answers. Take, for example, the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. One of the questions is, what is forbidden in the Fourth Commandment? The second, another question is, what is required in the Fourth Commandment? Do you see that difference? What's forbidden? What do you stop doing by doing the Fourth Commandment? What is required? What should it you know, invite in you? Not just what to avoid on the Sabbath day, but what should you be in your heart cultivating in the Sabbath? That is the direction for life. It's useful. The Scriptures tell us what is useful. It is a gift. It is a gift. Think about how hard it is to live right now. Think about how hard it is to know what's true. Think about how you answer life's biggest questions. What is the purpose of my life? How much money should I make? What should I do? What will make me happy? Where are you going to find answers to those questions? Are you going to Google that? Are you going to find out? Are you going to find some psychologist or some PhD? Or you know, how are you going to come about that those decisions? How? What if you had the breathed out Word of God? A letter of concern and burden and love and care and future held up for you in one place? What if the Scriptures were a gift that were actually useful? Not just something to avoid or feel guilty about, but something that you embraced as something that you need and desire A life lived in the sacred writings is a life that is profitable, useful. The last gift for us is the gift of salvation. There is a wisdom in the Scriptures. As we've just said, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. There is a wisdom, but wisdom in the Scriptures always has a particular goal. Wisdom leads to salvation. Look at verse 15 with me again. From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Wisdom has the goal of salvation, and the way of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. And the way that you know about Jesus Christ is through the story of redemption, and the way you know the story of redemption is through the sacred writings. The Scriptures then make you wise towards Christ. The Scriptures do a lot of things. We've already said they correct us. They train us in righteousness. They help us bridge the gap between generations. There's all kinds of gifts with the Scripture, but there is one overarching purpose to the Scriptures. It is to bring us to Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Himself demonstrates for us in Luke 24. He's been raised from the dead. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. He's got a couple of His disciples who haven't been able to identify Him yet. And so He is walking with them and He is doing what? He is teaching them about the Scriptures and showing them how all the law and the prophets were about Him. He was making them wise for salvation. To understand the, not just the stories that Timothy might have heard on the lap of Eunice and Lois as a child, and not just knowing that God had communicated some true things, but knowing that those true things had a goal to reach us to this person of Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to say we don't worship the Scriptures, even though they are sacred to us. The Scriptures are precious because they lead us to Christ. And Christ is the one that we worship. He is the ultimate gift. He is the way of salvation. This is the gift of the Scriptures. It's so beautiful and multifaceted. How do we take hold of this gift as we close today? Again, I've said, I'm not after mechanics and I'm not after guilt because those two things alone do not make us view the Scriptures as sacred. In fact, it is through having a godly heart given to us by Christ Himself and receiving the Gospel that we come to know and long for the Scriptures that has to come first, not through manipulation or motivation. But I recognize that many of us have hearts that need training in righteousness. We need need help to come again to the Scriptures. For those who have felt like this has been a season of neglect, I just want to say a few things as we close that may may or may not help you. They help me through various dry seasons. The first thing is this. Reading the Scriptures is one beautiful path, but not the only path to engagement with the Scriptures. Oftentimes we emphasize that in, in churches. Make sure you read the Bible, particularly with a plan. But don't forget that Scripture itself doesn't most often talk about Scripture as a reading plan, even though I think that's a very wise practice. It uses words like this. Meditation. Praying. Memorization. Listening. Consider, if it's been a season of neglect, one of the different paths other than reading that may help you. It may help you see it as a sacred gift to start there. Secondly, let me answer the question, how much should I read? I sometimes have this question put to me. Do I need to read the Bible in a year? What, how often should I read it? How much should I read? And what I always say is, 
I think a lot of wisdom is found in Psalm 1. And there's answers to a lot of questions on Psalm 1, honestly. And in Psalm 1, he says, your delight should be in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. That's the wisdom of the person who has a life with God. What does that mean? It means that there should be both delight and consistency. And so, what I offer to you today is, think about this. How much can I read with both consistency and delight? How much can I read with both consistency or meditate or listen? With consistency and delight. Not lacking either one of those. And maybe it starts with a verse that you can consistently go to every day and delight in. One that draws your heart in. One rule that I seek to follow with my life and will change the way that you think about the Scriptures, guaranteed if you follow it. Some of you have heard me say this before. My favorite rule for this is Scripture before screen. If you follow that, I'm not saying that the Bible tells you you must follow it, but I'm saying that if you do follow it, you will find that you will train not just your willpower, but your desires. Because that's the reason why that, that works. And I think you guys know what I mean by that. Scripture before screen means before I engage in any screen, any phone, any computer, any work. If I live by that rule, then I will always go to the Scripture because I know that I will always go to the screen. Right? And it puts the, perp- it puts the emphasis not on willpower. I've got to get up. I've got to get up at 6.30. I've got to, you know. It puts not on the willpower, but on desire. I desire a screen already. I need to analyze that, but, but I'm going to put something in the path of that desire so that I can train my heart to when I want something. And you will find over time that you don't want to go to the screen first. Last suggestion. When you're starting out or returning as I know many of us are. I suggest that you commit to the time, not to the system. It is my suggestion that if you've been in a season of neglect, that you not start with a Bible year plan. Why? Because there's too many pitfalls. There's too much guilt. There's too much association with getting off track and, and then giving up because you didn't commit to a plan. Instead, of the plan, commit to the time, it's this 10 minutes. It's this half hour. It's this time of day. It's this section before bed. It's this when I, write, when I wake up in the morning. It's much easier to commit to a time than it is to a system. Systems make us think, well, is this the best system? Should I be doing something else? What if I get off track? That's not what you were being invited into. If you're going to love the Scriptures, it's not because you love the system, it's because you love the Scriptures. And so commit to that instead. The mechanics of how and why and when will not work until we see the gift that we've been given. No amount of guilt or mechanics can lead us to this place where we see the profound thing that Paul is saying. These writings are sacred. That comes when we see Jesus and He changes us. And He makes our path straight. And He shapes our desires. And when we have Him, then we can begin to delight in His Word.
Let's pray.